how good it is for us to be together as the people of God, to sing the Word of God, to pray together, to pray the Word, and to hear the Word proclaimed, the Word preached. And this morning, we also have the great privilege to partake of the Lord's Supper together, something we do corporately as God's people. We're going to be in John's Gospel this morning, John chapter 15. We're in a passage that's likely familiar to many of us. This passage is often referred to simply as the vine and the branches. John chapter 15 is at the the center of this section of John's gospel, often referred to as the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse where our Lord Jesus is, is spending time alone with his followers. Jesus would soon be going to the cross And before he gives himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people, he spends time here with his closest companions, giving both instruction and hope. As we zoom out a bit and consider the Gospel of John, we remember that the first half of John's Gospel, the first 12 chapters, is often referred to as the book of signs. And here we see Jesus In his public ministry, he's moving about and performing signs. This is how John refers to miracles. And so as we read the first half of John's gospel, these first 12 chapters, we watch our Lord as he turns water to wine. He heals those with physical infirmities. He multiplies loaves and fish to feed the multitudes. He even raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus' ministry in John 1 through 12 is a public ministry. But then as we approach chapter 13, we find Jesus alone with his disciples, preparing to observe this important feast, the feast of the Passover. And in chapters 13 through 17, it's as if The noise on the periphery is silenced. The lights go dim. And the spotlight zooms in. The spotlight focuses on our Lord and his disciples. As he speaks to them in the most intimate way. In this most intimate setting. It's as if we find ourselves leaning in to hear the words of our beloved Savior. We remember that Jesus has washed the feet of his disciples, leaving them an example to follow. Judas has been dismissed from the room, the one who would betray him. Jesus gives the promise of a comforter, the comforter, the Holy Spirit who would come. The Holy Spirit who would come teaching the disciples, reminding them of what Jesus had told him. And that brings us right up to chapter 15. And the vine and the branches. 
Here in these verses, what we see is that believers, believers abide in Christ, the vine, and bring glory to God by bearing much fruit. This message is of great importance for you and I. Because here in these verses, we are given a description of the Christian life. Again, what we see is that believers abide in Christ, the vine, and bring glory to God by bearing much fruit. So if you would, stand with me in honor of God. We're going to read from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You can be seated. Lord, We bless your name this morning. We pray for your help. Give us tender hearts to receive your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll divide these verses we've just read into two sections this morning. First, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6, and then we'll look at verses 7 through 11. We'll look at 1 through 6 under this heading, the necessity of abiding in the vine. The necessity of abiding in the vine. In these verses, the Lord uses the imagery of a vineyard. This imagery of of a vine to describe the life of the believer. And so as we consider this, this allegory, this illustration, we notice that there is the vine, There's the vine dresser, and there are branches. Let's begin in verse 1 where we read these words, I am the true vine. Here is one of several I am statements that we find in John's gospel. We read elsewhere that Jesus, he says of himself, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, 
and the life. And here we read, I am the true vine. One of the themes of John's gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And in these I am statements, we not only hear the the deity of Jesus, he is God, but we also hear he's, he's the fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of what was depicted in the Old Testament. He's the bread of life, for example, the fulfillment of what the manna in the wilderness represented. And so here in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. This is significant. As we look back at the Old Testament, we see that oftentimes Israel is referred to as a vine or a vineyard. But it's interesting to note when this picture is used to describe Israel, it's in relation to Israel's failure to obey God. And God's impending judgment on the vine are in view. We see this in Isaiah chapter 5. In the first verses of Isaiah 5, it says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. The purpose of a vineyard, of course, is to yield fruit. But Israel failed as the vine. Israel yielded wild grapes and became degenerate and a wild vine, Jeremiah 2.21. Jesus, by contrast, is the true vine. He succeeds where Israel failed. And those who are united in him, with him, succeed with him. They are in him. And Jesus here, as he's inaugurating the new covenant, he's teaching us that those who are in him succeed with him, both Jew and Gentile are made one in him. So Jesus is the vine. He's the true vine. The true Israel. The father is the vine dresser. Or some translations say the gardener. The vine dresser or the gardener cares for the vine. He tends to it. So there's the vine the vine dresser, and now the branches. And what we notice is there, there are two kinds of branches. Those that don't bear fruit and those that do. Let's first consider the, the fruitless branches. The branches that do not bear fruit. Notice what happens to these fruitless branches. Verse 2 says that the vine dresser, the father, takes these branches away. In verse 6, we're given even more detail. The fruitless branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. This is a picture of divine judgment. The branches are burned. So it's appropriate for us to ask, who are these fruitless branches? 
Some have said that these branches are those who were truly in Christ. They were saved. But later they defected from the faith. They lost their salvation. But I don't believe that's who these fruitless branches are. They're not true believers. Nor do I believe that the Bible teaches that salvation may be lost. Rather, these fruitless branches are those who identify with Christ, but they're not truly His. The doctrine of the security of the believer is found throughout the pages of Scripture. And we could go to numerous passages to defend this doctrine. But I would like to demonstrate from John's writings both his gospel and his first epistle, why I believe the fruitless branches are not true disciples. Let's look together at John chapter 6. Turn back just a few pages to John chapter 6. And in this chapter, we read of of Jesus feeding the multitude. He feeds the 5,000. He then walks across the water. He walks across the sea to Capernaum. And when the crowd that had been following Jesus discovers that he's no longer in the place where he fed them, they pursue him and find him. In verse 26 then we read, Jesus answered them, that is this crowd that has come to him, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, this crowd was hoping to have their their hunger filled by Jesus again. But they were neglecting their greater need, namely to have their soul satisfied. Jesus continues then in verse 35. Please look at verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Those who come to Jesus who believe in him, who trust him for eternal life, will not be cast out. They are secure in him. Jesus continues speaking to the crowd here and explains that he is the bread of life. He's the the true bread. The one who, who eats of this bread will receive eternal life. He talks about eating his flesh and and drinking his blood. To eat the flesh of the Son of Man is to believe in him. Look at verse 47. Whoever believes has eternal life. And verse 54 then. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And so we see that eating And drinking of Christ means to believe in him. To believe 
on the Lord Jesus Christ is to receive eternal life. So let's summarize where we've been. There are crowds of people who have been following Jesus. They're identifying with him, and they're hoping to have their bellies filled. And Jesus says, you're missing it. You're missing your greater need to receive eternal life by believing. But this language of of eating and drinking and believing was troubling to the hearers. Let's look at verse 60 yet. Verse 60 says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So from these verses in, in John chapter 6, we see that there were, there were those many who identified with Jesus. They followed him for a time. But then they left him. They no longer remained with him. They did not abide in him. And furthermore, we see that Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. They looked the part, they followed Jesus, but they didn't truly believe these are the fruitless branches. Let's consider a second passage from John. If you turn over just a few pages to John chapter 13, we remember this is the beginning of this broader section called the farewell discourse, or even in this this portion, the upper room. Here is the Lord with his disciples. The twelve are gathered there with Jesus. He has just washed their feet. Let's pick up in verse 9 of chapter 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Do you hear what our Lord is doing? There's the twelve, but in that room is someone who would betray him. And so John is making it very clear for us. He knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. To be clean is to have your sins forgiven. To be in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Incidentally, as we, as we read through the New Testament, um, that's how the writers refer to us as believers. 
We are people who are in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus says here to the 12, not all of you are clean. Judas identified with the Lord, but he was not clean. Judas was a fruitless branch. He did not abide in the vine. He didn't remain in Christ Jesus. This is characteristic of fruitless branches. A third testimony from John's writing is appropriate here. I'll just read the verse. It's 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They appeared to be followers of Christ, but they departed. It's not that they were once in Christ and then lost their salvation. This would contradict passages such as John 10, 27 and the following where we read, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Brothers and sisters, the testimony of Scripture is that those who depart from the faith are not those who lose their salvation. They are those who identify with the vine for a time, but do not abide. They do not remain in him. They don't bear fruit. They're the fruitless branches, the end for whom is eternal destruction. It's a sobering prospect. Thus we see the necessity of abiding in the vine. Let's consider the second kind of branches, namely the fruit-bearing branches. Notice what happens to these branches. In verse 2, we see that the Father prunes them in order that they may bear more fruit. Here's the picture of the vine dresser actively tending to his vineyard. He's removing the superfluous things, the, the extra things from the plant in order that the branches may produce more fruit. It's a beautiful picture of a caring vine dresser. After high school, I, I pursued a degree in horticulture. And one of the classes that we were required to take was a class on pruning. And we were taught the appropriate method, the appropriate time to prune various trees and shrubs. In order for a plant to flourish, it needs to be pruned. You can look out in the spring and see this, these fast-growing shoots or suckers on shrubs, and they appear to be healthy. But actually, they're, they're detrimental to the plant. They're fast-growing and they're weak-wooded. And what they do is they sap energy from the rest of the plant. And so the best way to deal with them is to come along and to prune 
to clip those extra superfluous branches from the plant. Cutting away these extra shoots, these suckers, allows more nourishment for the healthy branches. And this is the picture given to us here. The vine dresser, our gracious heavenly father, prunes us in order that we may bear much fruit. Consider this. In his providential care, the Lord removes things in our life that hinder us from bearing fruit. How does he do this? He prunes us through trials. He uses the pruning knife of his holy word to wound us and to heal us, to expose us, to to lay us bare, and then to heal, to cover us with his tender care. We see this kind of pruning in the scripture. James says in chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That sounds like pruning to me. We're squeezed in trials. We're refined in trials. Romans 5.3 says that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That sounds a little bit like pruning, that we may bear more fruit. Or Peter, 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, may be found, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That sounds like pruning. In order that we may bear more fruit. Brothers and sisters, take comfort that the pruning that we undergo as fruitful branches is always from the gracious hand of our loving Heavenly Father. Our Father never prunes us in an act of condemnation, in an act of judgment. The condemnation that we deserve because of our rebellion against our Creator has been laid on Christ. God's wrath towards sins, our sins, has been fully satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we proclaim with joy in our hearts, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Remain in him. The writer of the book of Hebrews teaches us how we are to think about this pruning, 
how we're to think about this discipline of our Heavenly Father. In chapter 12 and verse 10 of the book of Hebrews, we read, He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This pruning is painful. When we undergo the the pruning of the Lord, we say, ouch, Lord, this hurts. And our loving Father says, I know. I know my precious son, my beautiful daughter, I know. Trust me. I'm pruning you. I'm removing the things in your life that will hinder your growth. We can relate to this in some small way. You ever taken a child to the ER? Maybe one who's cut themselves and somebody has to hold down the little one while you wash the wound and their little eyes look at you and they're not, they're not understanding this, right? This hurts, but we know it's for their good. We're a little bit like that. There is mystery in God's providence, the way he deals with us as his people. But here's what we do know. The Lord's pruning never comes to us as an act of judgment. That judgment that we deserved has been fully absorbed. And so now what flows out to us as God's people is love. The love of God. He's conforming us to Christ. And so we should rejoice, not grumble. We should rejoice and not grumble when we're pruned. Why? Because this is evidence that we belong to the Father. We're the fruitful branches who abide in the vine. So when you feel the painful affliction of pruning, rejoice. When you feel the pruning knife of conviction of sin, rejoice. When the word of God cuts you, rejoice. He's at work in your life. He's conforming you to Jesus. I say rejoice. Praise God. He's teaching us to trust him. The fruitful branches are those that abide in the vine and bear fruit. And thus we see the necessity of abiding in the vine. After all, we are dependent on the vine. Jesus instructs us not only to abide in him, he then says that apart from him we can do nothing. A branch that is not connected to the vine, a branch that is not drawing nourishment from the vine cannot bear fruit. As life flows from the vine to the branch, so life flows from Christ himself to his followers, and we abide in him. 
We remain in him, for apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We don't live the Christian life through gritted teeth and this determination of the will. Rather, we live by abiding in him. We acknowledge our weaknesses before him and our absolute dependence on him. And as we've already done this morning, we come as his people confessing our sins. We commune with him. We we offer our prayer and our praise to him and then we receive from him his nourishment. We enjoy communion with God through Jesus by the Spirit. This necessity of abiding in the vine is a beautiful reality for the believer. Let's consider now the results of abiding in the vine. After considering the necessity, let's let's turn our attention now to the second half of this passage and rejoice in the results of abiding in the vine. When we abide in the vine, our, our prayers conform to the will of God. In other words, we, we begin to pray according to God's will. And thus we receive the things of which we ask. If we abide in Christ and his words abide in us, we begin to think like Christ and act like him and speak like him we realize that abiding in Christ is a way of life. This is who we are. As we drink deeply from the vine, we receive our nourishment from him, and our prayers are shaped by the truths of his word. We receive what we ask for. We begin to pray like our Savior, making our requests known and then submitting to the will of the Father Not my will, but yours, Father, be done. As we draw our strength from the Lord, the way we we view ourselves and, and the way we view the world begins to change. Suffering, for example, begins to take on a different meaning. We learn that suffering in all of its Million manifestations. For the believer, there's purpose here. There's purpose in our suffering. And therefore, we pray for grace. Grace in order that we may bring glory to God in our response to the difficulties in our lives. We pray like the psalmist at the end of Psalm 33 when he says, Our soul waits for the Lord. We could stop there, couldn't we? Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. When we abide in the vine, our prayers conform to the will of God and we receive what we ask for. 
But that's not all. A second result of abiding in the vine is God is glorified. These two are not mutually exclusive. The glory of God and praying according to his will. When we abide in the vine, we, we bear fruit. We bear fruit and, and, and we remember that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And the flip side, of course, is that in Christ, we can do the things that he has called us to do. We're abiding in him. The Father prunes us in order that we may bear more and more fruit. And in so doing, we bring glory to God. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. There's assurance here for us. For as we bear fruit, we prove to be his disciples. And so we can ask the question, what does fruit bearing look like in the life of the believer? What does it mean to to bear fruit? It looks like obedience to the Lord's commands. Jesus said back in chapter 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. We obey the Lord's command by loving one another. And one way that we demonstrate this love for one another is by forgiving one another. We forgive one another. When we've been sinned against, as God's people, we want to be those who are quick to forgive. Our natural tendency, it's to withhold forgiveness and even to harbor bitterness against those who have sinned against us. But obedience to the command to love will not allow for this. How do we do this? How do we demonstrate forgiveness, love through forgiveness? We do so not by gritting our teeth and sheer determination, but we do so by abiding in the vine. Abiding in the vine, we talk with our Lord. We pour out our hearts to him. We confess our sins. We remember our sins against him and the way he pursues us and washes us clean. We see our sin against him chiefly and the sins of others against us only secondarily. We believe that since we've been forgiven by the infinitely holy God, we too must forgive from a heart of love. First, love for the Savior. The one who stands always waiting to dispense in abundance his rich grace and mercy. And then love for our brother and sister, the one for whom Christ died. When we struggle to obey, we confess it to him. We seek his face and we we abide in him. The result of which is God being glorified. A third result then of abiding in the vine is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. Jesus says these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
The words that Jesus speaks to his followers are words that bring joy. His words are truth. His words are hope. His words are life. Is it any wonder that the psalmist said in Psalm 119, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces? This is one who has drunk deeply from the word. Jesus' joy is that perfect is from that of perfect obedience. And this joy of the Lord may be in us. We experience this fullness of joy, complete satisfaction by abiding in him. And as we abide in Christ, bearing fruit, obeying the will of the Father, we experience joy. Deep-rooted joy, knowing that although the world may hate us and uh, although we may endure intense suffering, we have a Savior who will never leave us, who will never forsake us and in whose presence there is fullness of joy. Oh, that we would be a people who love the Lord Jesus. The one who said of himself, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you're here this morning, and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, hear this call. Come to me. I will satisfy your longing soul. The things that you're pursuing in this life to satisfy you will never satisfy. A quick look at history will suffice. But Jesus says, come to me. I will satisfy the longing soul. Fullness of joy will not be found in anyone or anything but Christ. Abide in him. Experience the blessing of his fullness. John Owen was a Puritan. He's a pastor and theologian. He lived from 1616 to 1683, and he wrote extensively on the work of Christ and living the Christian life. Listen to what he said about the fullness of Christ in his book, Communion with God. Owen writes, So, because of his fullness, Christ has all sufficiency in himself to be to the soul all that the soul desires. Is the soul dead? Christ is life. Is the soul weak? Christ is its strength. Is the soul ignorant? Christ is its wisdom. Is the soul guilty? Christ is its righteousness and justification. May we be people who find our fullness of joy in the beloved Savior. We've seen both the necessity and the results of abiding in the vine. And so, we proclaim believers, believers abide in Christ the vine and bring glory to God by bearing much fruit. Let's pray together and then we'll partake of the Lord's Supper.